Well, if you would, I invite you to turn with me this morning once again, why I say once again, once again to the Gospels, uh, but to a different Gospel this morning, to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 19, you can turn there in your own copy of God's Word, or you can simply look on the screen uh, that you have before you. We've been bouncing around uh, the Gospel accounts for the past several weeks, um, looking at the person and work of Jesus through the eyes and the experiences of those closest to him when he was here on earth. And specifically, we've been looking at those times when Jesus has been in people's homes. He's been at their parties. He's been at their dinner tables. He's been eating and drinking. And as he's been doing this, he's been revealing himself all along the way. And that's what I've wanted us to see through this series. I wanted us, I've wanted us to simply see Jesus, that we might know him more, that we might love him more deeply, that we might be challenged by what our response to him might be. Well, today in Luke chapter 19, we turn to a, a very familiar story for, for some, at least those who grew up in the church. This is a, a favorite Sunday school story. It even has its own little song. Um, I'm not going to sing it. I'm tempted to sing it, uh, but I won't sing about wee little Zacchaeus up in the tree. Um, this takes place, this story takes place at the end of Jesus' ministry, or near the end of Jesus' ministry, about 15 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And that's Jesus' ultimate destination as he has set his face there and he knows what waits for him. Uh, but he's passing through Jericho. Now, we're familiar with Jericho. Jericho has come a long way from its uh, Old Testament history and infamy, long way from its ruins at the hands of the Israelites. It's now, at this time, in the first century, it's a major hub of trade and commerce in the ancient world. It's a, it's a little paradise of sorts with, with aqueducts and streets lined with sycamore trees and palm trees. Herod, the ruler, has even built a, a winter palace there with a hippodrome, a, a, an ancient Greek stadium and theater. Jesus is just passing through. He's not there to enjoy any of the amenities, but he has business here. And so listen as I read Luke chapter 19, uh, this familiar story, verses 1 through 10. This is God's word. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was so small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, 
since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. As we set our minds and our hearts on this passage for a few minutes, I'd like us to consider three things. Three things to meditate on through this story. And the first thing is this. Jesus loves childlike faith. Jesus loves childlike faith. When I was a teenager growing up, there was a marketing scheme that came out. It was a group of commercials for, for Klondike bars. You remember those? Klondike bars, uh, those yummy uh, ice cream bars covered in chocolate. And you remember the, the commercials? What would you do for a Klondike bar? And one of the first ones that came out, a street reporter would go up to these various people and he'd ask them if they would balk like a chicken for a Klondike bar. And of course, they would balk like chickens for a Klondike bar. And another, the reporter goes up to this businessman and he's all decked out in his suit and dressed up. And they, would ask, they asked him if he would sing, I'm a little teapot for a Klondike bar, complete with the, uh, with the handle and the spout. And he, he's reluctant at first, but he sees that Klondike bar, and oh man, he just can't resist the Klondike bar. And, and so he eventually sings the song, What Would You Do for a Klondike Bar? Well, that's a lighthearted example. Doing something silly for a bar of ice cream, but it begins, it just begins to illustrate what's going on here. And this first point that Jesus loves childlike faith. Because see, that commercial series acknowledges that there are some things that are so valuable that you'll do whatever it takes to acquire them. We'll talk more about the man Zacchaeus in just a few minutes. But for now, I I just want us to to focus on two things. Number one, that he's important, at least in his own mind, he is important. And secondly, he was short. Literally, he was a short man. Now, how Zacchaeus knew about Jesus, what he had heard about Jesus, we don't exactly know. No, but at this time in Jesus' ministry, especially among the Jews, there would have been all kinds of buzz. In fact, this event, if we um, were to flip a page in our Bibles, it happens right before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where the Israelites line the streets and, and rejoice that their king has come. And so here in Luke chapter 19, we're told that Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, Now, there are lots of words that the author of this gospel, Luke, there are lots of words that Luke could have used for the word see here, but he uses a Greek word that is more than just vision. It's more than just a glance. You see, Zacchaeus is is more than just curious. Something or someone has made him want to know Jesus to experience Jesus, not just catch a glimpse of what all the hubbub is about, but to know, to press in. And yet this scene for 
Zacchaeus, it's proving itself to be quite difficult. Big crowds and short stature, they don't mix. Especially crowds that don't like you and therefore aren't really willing to let you kind of edge your way to the front so that you could see Zacchaeus, if he's not careful, might lose his opportunity. And so what does he do? He runs. He runs ahead and he does something that children do. He climbs a tree. You see, children are not concerned about their reputation. They're not so concerned about their dignity. They don't care what people think of them. There aren't always good filters on their speech. They aren't afraid to be silly and playful. They do whatever it takes to get what they want. Zacchaeus' scramble up a tree may have been practical, but it sure wasn't dignified for a man such as he. I mean, maybe at this point in his career, he was so far past what people thought of him. They hated him. We'll get to that in a minute. But more likely, Zacchaeus was willing to swallow his pride, gird up his robes, sprint ahead of the procession, scramble up of this tree because he was going to do what it took to see Jesus. And you know what? Jesus loves this. Jesus loves childlike faith. Not too long before this very incident in Luke chapter 18, Jesus sat with a bunch of kids around him and he said this, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall never enter it. See, in addition to all those things that I said, maybe most importantly about children is they trust. They trust. They're willing to believe the unbelievable. They haven't lost their sense of of wonder. They still possess that, that joyful abandon and dependence. We in our world say, grow up. Get over it. Grow up. And Jesus says, no, not when it comes to me. I love childlike faith. Jesus still loves childlike faith. Well, what might a bold and, and reckless childlike faith look, for you this, look like for you this morning? I don't, I don't know. Maybe you're watching this morning, you're struggling to swallow your pride, but you know you've become increasingly aware that you can't figure life out, that you can't navigate it well. Jesus says, come to me, trust in me, do what it takes with whatever faith you can muster because I'm already at work. That's the first truth I want us to think about today. And the second is this. Jesus came to be cozy with crooks. Jesus came to be cozy 
with crooks. That phrase is one that I I took, I borrowed from Eugene Peterson's translation of this passage in his book, The Message of verse seven, when the crowd grumbles that Jesus has become a guest of sinners. Eugene Peterson translates that as cozy with crooks. You see, Zacchaeus wasn't just short. Zacchaeus was hated. Remember, at this point in history, the people of Israel are firmly under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And part of that reality in the Roman Empire and in Roman colonies was the issue of taxation. God's people were subject to taxes, lots of taxes, taxes for being a citizen, taxes on your harvest when you brought it in, sales tax when you purchased something. There was even a a toll tax for travelers that were traveling through Jericho. We, We all know this, we feel this, it's tax month after all. Taxes are not a popular thing, but the Romans were smart. They didn't collect these taxes themselves. They got the Jews to do it. They got the Jews to collect from their own people. And and that position, that responsibility given by Rome was a lucrative one because under the authority and protection of Rome, you could charge whatever you wanted for, for the taxes. You could skim off the top as long as Rome got their share. And so tax collectors were kind of sleazy. Worse than an IRS agent, IRS agent, at least the IRS agents, we think, we assume, follow the laws of the land. Now, this is more like uh, what I envision a, a police officer in, in Tijuana. I remember when I lived down there, we would have to go down to Mexico for various things. There was always concern because if you got pulled over by a police officer in, in Tijuana, you, you may not have been doing anything wrong. He might just want some American money. Zacchaeus was corrupt, crooked, hated by the Jews, not respected by the Romans. This was the life of a tax collector. And Zacchaeus, our passage tells us, is the only place we find this phrase, was the chief tax collector collector. He was the worst of the worst, in charge of the worst. There were three main tax offices in that region, one in Caesarea, one in Capernaum, and one in Jericho. And so one commentator describes Zacchaeus as the kingpin of the Jericho cartel. This is Zacchaeus. This is the man who's up in a tree amidst a crowd of people wanting to see Jesus. And what happens? What happens is Jesus sees him. Jesus knows his name. Jesus invites himself over. No, he he actually says, I must stay at your house. 
And it's all Jesus' initiative. Zacchaeus has done nothing, no, no repentance, no cleaning up his life first. He didn't have a chance to even introduce himself, let alone be the one that invites Jesus over for dinner. We might say that rather than Zacchaeus inviting Jesus into his heart, Jesus is the one inviting himself into Zacchaeus' heart. Grace makes the move. Because God is already at work. And of course, this move by Jesus, this is scandalous. Scandalous to those around, and we understand the frustration. If we were in the unlooking crowd as well, we'd be frustrated. But Jesus came for men such as this. He came to be cozy with crooks. You may not be, I hope you're not, a cheating, tax-collecting crook, but you are, you are a sinner. I am a sinner. We are prone to self in a thousand different ways, and we have as much merit in coming to God as Zacchaeus did up in that tree. And yet this, from Romans 5, we heard it earlier read to us, while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this was the beginning of all of our stories, all who claim the name of Christ listening this morning. Jesus has pursued you in his grace, but it also continues to be your story as his grace still pursues us, still pursues me at the right hand of God the Father because we're still sinning. We're striving not to, I'm striving not to, but we're failing, I'm failing And so what is Jesus doing now? He's doing at least two things. Jesus is interceding and he's advocating. Dane Ortland in that book, Gentle and Lowly, which I spoke of to many of you in in this week's Wednesday word, he helpfully focuses us on these two aspects of what Christ is doing right now. He first defines intercession as this, the constant hitting refresh on our justification in the court of heaven. And then he says this about Christ's present advocacy at the right hand of the Father. He says, we are indeed called to forsake our sins and no healthy Christian would suggest otherwise. When we choose to sin, we forsake our true identity as a child of God. We invite misery into our lives and we displease our heavenly Father. We are called to mature into deeper levels of personal holiness as we walk with the Lord. Truer consecration, new vistas of obedience and we say, yes, 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 that's what I want to be. But then he continues, he says, but when we don't, when we choose to sin, though we forsake our true identity, our Savior does not 
forsake us. These are the very moments when his heart erupts on our behalf in renewed advocacy in heaven with a resounding defense that silences all accusation, astonishes the angels, and celebrates the Father's embrace of us in spite of all our messiness. Oh, that's good news. And that's good news not just for crooks, not just one time when you came to Christ. That's good news today and tomorrow morning when you screw up that Jesus came to be cozy with crooks like you and me. Brothers and sisters, let your hearts be stirred by such a Savior. Gaze deeply into this Savior's call. And that brings us to what happens now. It's our third truth this morning, and it's this. Knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus results in radical generosity. Knowing Jesus results in radical generosity. There's there's this hard transition between verse 7 and verse 8. You can look at it there with me in your Bibles. How much time passed, we really don't know. What we do know is that Jesus is in his home. Jesus has been talking to him and that Zacchaeus has changed. Zacchaeus has radically changed. And of course, this is more than just Jesus rubbing off on him. He's been saved, verse 9 says. Jesus' own word, salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus has always been an ethnic son of Abraham, but now he is a true son, a spiritual son of Abraham. See, not only has an acknowledgement of who Jesus is come to this house, but an acknowledgement of sin, an acknowledgement of need, And repentance. Whatever seed of faith drove Zacchaeus up in that tree has now blossomed into full blown repentance and transformation. He is forever changed. And for a guy whose life revolved around money, it's the first place where it shows up. And remember, Zacchaeus was was a Jew. He knew the law of God. He knew Numbers chapter 5, which says this, when a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, that person realizes his guilt. He shall confess his sin that he has committed. He shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. In other words, the Old Testament law required 20% restitution. And in other cases, like in Exodus 22, we even find in some cases it's 50% is required. What does Zacchaeus do? 400% plus half my possessions. This is the power of knowing Jesus. This is the power of experiencing his grace. Radical generosity, giving till it hurts. Not to earn the Savior's favor, but because of the Savior's favor. See, Zacchaeus was so rich, I suspect 20% would have been like a drop in the bucket for him. But 400%, now there's something 
that he might feel. There is an amount that would mean something to him. Brothers and sisters, the gospel doesn't nickel and dime and ask, how much is enough? The gospel doesn't give rules and expectations and requirements, but freedom to respond to grace. The gospel doesn't just give once, but the gospel sets us on a mission of generosity in every area of our lives because knowing Jesus results in radical generosity. Paul reminded Timothy in his first letter to him, 1 Timothy 6, as far as the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who provides everything to enjoy there, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Well, what does that mean for us here today? What, what does that look like? Well, I hear you. In, in the midst of a, a looming, excuse me, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a looming economic crisis, now is not the time to be talking about generosity. Or is it? For some of us, I recognize not for all. Even this past month, life and And paychecks have gone on. In fact, we have received thousands of dollars from the government that we didn't expect. What does radical generosity look like with that? Yes, it's not not money that you've swindled, but it is money that you're being given to steward. I read an article, it was actually a couple weeks ago before I dove into this passage. I read an article from a pastor that has eight helpful biblical guidelines. And I found these to be so balanced and challenging. And it was an article specifically about the stimulus check. And I just want to read these eight very quickly to you as we think about what radical generosity might look like. Number one, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And you don't have to write these down. I can send you the link to the article. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Not only that, but he owns every penny of the $2 trillion stimulus. Christians are called to be humble stewards of God's resources, his third-party money managers. Be thankful for your government, but even more thankful for your God. Number two, God provides for his people's needs. It's disgraceful when those who are given the opportunity to provide for their families fail to do so. Take care of your own bills, your own debts, your own expenses, as well as those of your extended family. The stimulus was designed to bring economic stability in a time of instability. Number three, God sometimes provides for future difficulty. When provisions are plentiful, the ant works in wisdom, knowing cold and less fruitful winters are coming. We don't know how long the economic downturn could last, so saving seems prudent. Number four, godliness with contentment is great gain. Since the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, be careful not to fall into temptation, to love the stuff this money can buy more than the stability God can provide. Number five, God provides for enjoyment. When held in tension with being ready to share, there's nothing wrong with enjoying God's 
provision, enjoying a date night or a new outfit as a gift from God also helps the economy. Number six, God provides so that we might share. Paul urges Timothy in that passage I just read to remind the wealthy of the uncertainty of money and to be generous and willing to share. Consider how you might give to help a family, a friend, or even a business. The United States has extraordinary economic safety nets in place. While other countries in the world do not, consider giving to the global partners or larger mission agencies who can funnel funds to those in more dire situations. Number seven, God loves a cheerful giver. While some Christians agree that tithing 10% is not the New Testament model of giving, joyful generosity is the standard. Online giving has helped many churches stem the tide of financial disaster, but continue to give generously to the church, especially if you're a member. And number eight, it's more blessed to give than to receive. However you use the stimulus money, remember Jesus has said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So find your higher joy, not in receiving or hoarding these funds, but by sharing them through business and acts of generosity. Knowing Jesus produces radical generosity. This is not a sermon on giving. It wasn't meant to be a sermon on giving. It's, It's bigger than that. It's a sermon on looking at Jesus on seeing Jesus, on knowing Jesus, and never being the same. Whether it's through radical generosity or through other means, knowing Jesus, the one who came to be cozy with crooks, with sinners like you and me, changes us. So come to him like a needy child, hungry, believing and recklessly responding to his ridiculous grace. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this memorable, beautiful story of Zacchaeus and his experience with the Lord Jesus. Father, as we take his experience and make it our own, and we're reminded again of the beauty of our Savior of his person and of his work. Father, may we respond to that grace in powerful, tangible, generous ways. Show us how. Holy Spirit, plant your word deep in our hearts for the good of your people, for the proclamation of your name for the building of your church. This I pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.